Ryder and Nystrom. Nystrom's really getting some good right hands in. Gillies is down with Sandstrom. Somebody better help Sandstrom. Everyone must be held accountable for their actions. You cannot see your star carried out in a stretcher and do nothing about it. Oh my, did Mick plant one on C-card. Wow. You can't put a bounty on a man's head. I just did. But just a minute, Al Arbor has won mm -hmm. four Stanley Cups, so don't start telling Al Arbor what to do, you and John Davison. This is Coliseum Chronicles The Penalty Box, your source for Islanders Enforcer Talk. Welcome to episode 76, actual episode 98, an episode I've titled Death and Rebirth. I understand that title is a little grim, and it's way more serious, way more intense than what you're used to on this program, but if you know me or you're familiar with the particular incident that happened in my life, and you're familiar with the date that it happened, I think you know where this episode is going. But if you don't, stay tuned and uh, you'll learn all about it. First, if you're on social media and you're on Twitter, consider going to at Pod, hitting that follow button, and I will follow you back in kind. And if you're so inclined to go to my personal Twitter account, at Joe underscore Lozito, same thing happens there. You follow me, I will follow you back. Happy to do so. Uh, if you're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Coliseum Chronicles podcast. And on Instagram, Coliseum underscore Chronicles underscore podcast. Now, if you go to any of those platforms, you will notice my logo. And I love that logo. And that logo was drawn by local Long Island artist Joe Marisich. Joe Marisich is extremely talented, especially if you like tunes. Now... I say that, but I want you to know if you have any art projects that are other forms of art, Joe can do that too. But since this is a sports-based podcast, if you're an Islanders fan, you have definitely seen his Islanders tunes. And that goes likewise for the Mets and the Jets and for sports radio. So uh, if you're a fan of any of those teams, you've seen his tunes. But please do not typecast Joe as just a cartoon artist. He can do everything. And if you're available, if you're available, if you're interested in hiring Joe, he's available for hire. And you can reach Joe on Twitter at GraphicsJoker or at LoudEgg.com. You will certainly not be disappointed. Other things that won't disappoint you are the two podcasts I'd like to tell you about. The first podcast is my friend Darren up in Saskatoon, the host of the Fourth Line Voice podcast. Darren is a proud member of the Hockey Podcast Network. Two slamming episodes every week. Wednesday, he usually brings an uh, interview episode. And Sunday, more times than not, is the Sunday shit show where Darren channels his inner old fart Stares out the mirror, uh, the mirror, God almighty, stares out the window, pumps his fist, and rants about the goings-on of the past week in hockey, in sports, in life. Always very entertaining. 
But this week, what Darren did, uh, he released an episode on Wednesday with uh, hockey fight fan Dante. And um, as I said in the last episode, once I heard Dante, I heard his accent. I knew exactly where he was from, the South Jersey, Philadelphia area. That was a great episode. And today, he released an uh, an Easy for me to say, folks. He released an episode with hockey fight fan Dave. Now, Dave, I believe, is uh, up in Saskatchewan. He's either he's in Western Canada. I don't know if it's Saskatchewan or Alberta. I barely got into the episode uh, today, and um, so I have some listening to do tomorrow. So, um, so that those are two episodes definitely worthwhile. Now, I don't know if Dave partook. In the ranting portion of the episode, I do know that uh, according to Darren's post on Twitter, they did talk some senior hockey. They did talk about Rick Rippon and a host of other topics. Uh, I heard up until the beginning of the senior hockey talk, and so far it's been uh, it's been a great episode. Darren always delivers tremendous back catalog. Definitely check it out. Fourth Line Voice Podcast, Hockey Podcast Network, two episodes a week. Also. If you have ever watched a hockey fight on YouTube, chances are it was on the 4th Line Voice YouTube channel. Uh, Almost 2,700 hockey fights on the 4th Line Voice YouTube channel. I would tell you to check it out, but you probably already have. So return to the 4th Line Voice YouTube channel. Check it out, and you will not be disappointed. Just like if you hired Joe Marisic. And also... Just like if you tune into the Five for Fighting podcast with Alec Coden-Salen down in Florida. Alec is a member of Six Pack Coverage. His latest episode, and we discussed it last week in my intro, um, he went in-depth in the Malcolm Subban and Jacob Panetta incident. And uh, as I said last week, uh, did a really good job presenting, um, I I would say presenting arguments for both sides, but I don't know if it's arguments. I actually think it's reasons, and he did a great job, and it's definitely a must-listen as are all his past episodes. So definitely go to Five for Fighting. Check out the back catalog. But first, check out the episode about Jacob Panetta and Malcolm Subban. Also, Alec has a YouTube channel. Alec, the uh, Five for Fighting YouTube channel. Alec focuses on the league that shall not be named. There's a certain professional league that... I don't think realizes that um, they fight there or they don't want to promote it. It's funny because, in my opinion, one of the things that uh, this league made its uh, bones with was the physical play and the fighting. But who am I to say? But uh, it's a double-A professional league, and uh, generally it's the league below the American Hockey League. So that's all I can say. I don't want to give the name out because they're very sensitive about that. But um, Alec has posted most of the fights from the league that shall not be named this year, and he does a great job with that. So definitely listen to Five for Fighting podcast and check out the Five for Fighting YouTube channel. Also, while you're on this Alec kick, go to Facebook and join up with the Enforcer Appreciation page, uh, one of the fastest-growing fight groups on the Internet. And uh, there's some good stuff on it. But again, Facebook and all these groups, they're a microcosm of society. So while there's some really, really good stuff on that page and uh, you have the opportunity 
to talk with many, many uh, former enforcers, probably some current ones too, uh, that did the job or do the job and you can get firsthand accounts of everything. There are some goofballs on there, so be prepared. But definitely worth your while, definitely worth your time to join up with that group. So a um, little bit of homework there between the podcast I want you to listen to and the YouTube channels and Facebook. But if you're listening to this show, you probably appreciate the more physical side of hockey, so you will not be disappointed with any of the homework that I've given you. It is now time for the 2021-22 New York Islanders slash Bridgeport Islanders fight report. And we have a few new entries this week since the last time we spoke. For the Bridgeport side, uh, two days ago, February 11th, 2022, Parker Watherspoon with his team leading fourth fight. And actually, he obviously, if it's his fourth fight, he had a third fight. And he was leading the team with that third fight. And so now what he's done is increased his league with his team leading fourth fight against Charlotte and Saran Noel. So uh, Parker Watherspoon really, really, um, he's always been a physical player. uh, But the fact is now he's got a two-fight lead over anybody else on Bridgeport this year. It's great to see. Um, anytime a guy like that adds, it's not that he added a new aspect to his game. He's like I said, he's always played that part. He's always played physical, but maybe, you know, he sees an opportunity here to try and get noticed. And, um, you know, I mean, it's February. He's had four fights this season. He may end up with seven, eight, he could very well lead the team in fights, but good for Parker Watherspoon. Um, you know, good for you, kid, and uh, team leading fourth fight. On the Islanders' side, we have the debut of Big Ross Johnston. February 9th against Vancouver, Ross Johnston logged his first fight of the season and his first fight since fighting Samuel Moran, and uh, it was a good one against Luke Shen of Vancouver. Ross did very well in that fight, and it was great, 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 great to see him drop the gloves again. And, uh, you know, it took him a while to get back, and I I don't know, um, you know, some people have said, oh, he was gun-shy, this and that, and I don't know that to be the case. It's not like this is the 80s or the 90s where he's got a partner every night because he doesn't. You know that. Um, But on the other hand, I'm sure it felt good after that fight to kind of get that fight after the Moran fight out of the way. And uh, after that first fight, which got him on the the scoreboard here for the Islanders, uh, four nights later, um, last night, Ross Johnston and Eric Gabranson of Calgary. Now, I was hoping for a Ross Johnston and Milan Lucic bout. I did not get that. But on Calgary, uh, Gabranson is the second best option. And uh, good tilt, two big boys here. Um, nice to see Ross get two in a, in the span of a few days. And um, with that fight, Ross jumps to second on the team in fights this year behind Matt Martin and Zdeno Chara, who both have four as well. So organizationally, you have Martin, Chara, and Watherspoon all have four fights. Uh, you know, I mean, the Islanders have 16 fights this year. You know, maybe they end up with 22 or 23. You know, you never know. You you know, Ross may be a little more active now. And um, we'll see where this goes. I mean, uh, 
you know, I take the up this uptick in fighting with a grain of salt because as we get further towards the playoffs, and you know, we've discussed the Islanders' playoff chances now. I think they have a nine percent chance of making the playoffs. So even if they don't have a chance of making the playoffs, the teams they're playing, you know, they may have a chance. So you never know who's dressing if they have any scrappers dressed, but. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Nice to see Ross Johnston uh, log his name onto the fight card this year. Uh, there's an announcement for the show that I'm very, very, very happy to make. Um, I was approached by Buffalo's own Ranting Ron, and uh, Ranting Ron is the boss at RR Productions, and Coliseum Chronicles, the penalty box, is now a part of RR Productions. Um, and if you go to the RR Productions Twitter page, uh, it, the description there is RR Productions is affiliated with several Buffalo podcasts with the goal to help growth and development in our network by marketing and promotion. So obviously I am not a Buffalo podcast, but Ron and I have followed each other for a bit. You know, I'm obviously a Bills fan and, um, so I think there's the connection with that. And, uh, you know, it's good. Maybe maybe Ron is uh, going to branch out a little bit outside of Buffalo. But um, obviously, me being a Bills fan, I'm interested in Bills content. And the Sabres are always a team that, um, and Ron and I were discussing this, I've always liked the Sabres. They've always had tough teams. Um, you know, even this year, I don't know uh, about their uh, who's fighting or whatever for them, but uh, assistant coach Smurf Christie. I know Smurf really well, so I have that connection with them. And, you know, just going back to players that have played there like Brad May and Bob Bugner, um, you know, those guys, uh, Gord Donnelly, really, really like Gord Donnelly. And going back to Larry Playfair, and I'm sure at uh, Roman Ender, I'm leaving guys out, I know that, but the Sabres are always a team that are easy to root for. So uh, I'm really pumped to have joined RR Productions. So, um, Definitely check out RR Productions on Twitter, on Facebook. Give them a follow and check out the other shows. And um, hopefully I keep up my end of the bargain. So, Ron, thank you very much for welcoming me uh, to the group, to the family. And I hope I do you proud. So with that, I'm going to take a drink right now. All right. Now, the other day, Milestone for former guest Kevin Kaminsky, uh, good friend Killer Kaminsky. I love that man. Killer notched his 600th career coaching win. So uh, <laughs> that's a pretty big achievement. And Killer seems to have this thing where he goes to teams and all he does is win. So uh, this is no surprise that he's uh, he's got win number 600. So um, I just want to congratulate Killer. Um, if you watch Killer play, you know all he does and all he did was work hard. He brings that same attitude to coaching. He's a winner. He grinds out wins. His, his teams play hard for him. So um, congratulations on your 600th career coaching win, Killer. And uh, here's to 600 more. And, you know, who knows? I'm really anxious to see um, where this trajectory takes you. Hopefully at some point you end up back in the show. We'll see what happens, but I know wherever you are, you are going to be giving it 100%, and your teams are going to try every single night, no nights off. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> God, I hate when I do that. 
All right. So a couple days ago on social media, and this was something that I stole from the Rod Peterson show because he was talking about Mount Rushmore, sports Mount Rushmore's. And I said, you know what? That's a pretty good topic. So I knew with the um, the nuts and bolts of this episode, I knew that I wasn't going to have too many things to talk about before the uh, the main part of the episode. But I thought, let me throw it out there. Let me get people's opinions. So what I did, I asked people for their Islanders Mount Rushmore, the organizational Mount Rushmore, and then I said, give me your enforcer Mount Rushmore for the Islanders. I got some pretty pretty good answers here. Now, obviously, for the Islanders Mount Rushmore, there's really four names. I mean, technically, I would say there's six. It really depends on which way you want to approach this. But I think everyone considers the Islanders big four the Mount Rushmore. And that's uh, Dennis Potvin, Brian Trottier, Billy Smith, and Mike Bossy. And obviously... Those four guys got the most votes. Mike Bossy received the most votes with 63. Trottier, oh my God. Wow, I can't wait till I hit puberty. Trottier, 55, uh, 55 votes. Tied with Dennis Podvin, who also got 55 votes. And Billy Smith got 47 votes. Now, it's very, my opinion, and this is my opinion, doesn't make me right, but it is my opinion. In my opinion, the most important player ever on in this organization was Dennis Potvin. I think uh, I think the drafting of Potvin and what he brought to this organization, I think, makes him the most important player. I, I think he's the best player that this team has ever had. I think he's the best defenseman to ever skate in the NHL. And um, I'm a little surprised that that he only placed second, but more surprising was Billy Smith with 47 votes. Now, I expect Billy Smith to not get the respect he deserves from other teams' fans. But it's kind of weird. I I don't know. Like, you look at some of the goalies that have come after Billy Smith, the Patrick Waz, the Martin Brodeurs, goalies like that that put up these insane numbers. And what they don't have four Stanley Cups, and they certainly don't have four Stanley Cups in a row. And I don't know. It makes me wonder as the years go by if Billy Smith, not that he's getting forgotten. There's no chance of that. But if the aura and the mystique of Billy Smith is sort of, again, not maybe fading a little bit. I was really surprised that Billy Smith was um, 16 votes behind Bossy and eight votes behind Trottier and Potvin. That's all like, I don't know. I just, to me, the the four of them should have been, to me, they should have been very close in votes, uh, not the eight-vote eight, eight vote discrepancy between Bossy, Trotty, and Podvin, and certainly not the 13-vote discrepancy. I'm sorry, the 16-vote discrepancy between Bossy and Smith. I mean, I, listen, obviously, the next guy on the list after Billy Smith was Clark Gillies, and he had 15 votes. Um, but... Like I said, I don't know. I just, um, I mean, listen, Mike Bossy got the most votes. He's the greatest goal scorer in the history of the game. So <laughs> when it comes to these four guys, there's no wrong answers. And it's really just a matter of opinion. In my opinion, Pot, my Mount Rushmore in order goes Pod Ventradier, Smith, and Bossy. 
It just does. And being fourth on that list, in in my eyes, is no big deal. But here I am making a case for Billy Smith, so maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. But the other two names that um, I, I say could go on this list if you wanted to expand a little bit outside of on the ice would be Al Arbor and Bill Torrey. And Al Arbor received 13 votes and Bill Torrey received five. And I think, like I said, I think most people, and that was my intention was, was the players. And uh, when people voted for Arbor and Torrey, I thought that was really cool. So, um, but I didn't, I didn't uh, expect that. I thought people would just stick on the ice, but it was a pleasant surprise. And I really think outside of the four, the big four, Ann Arbor and Torrey, I don't know if there's really any other names that you can put up there. But again, the best part about being an Islanders fan is the history of this team and what certain players mean to you. So just to give you a rundown of the voting, as I've already said, Mike Bossy, 63 votes, Brian Trottier, 55 votes, Dennis Podvin, 55 votes, and Billy Smith, 47 votes. That's the consensus Mount Rushmore from the uh, people that that voted on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. After Billy Smith, you have Clark Gillies with 15, Al Arbor with 13, Bobby Nystrom with 7, Bill Torrey with 5. Ironically, Patty LaFontaine and Pierre Turgeon, guys that were traded for each other, both registered 3 votes. Uh, two votes each for uh, John Ledecky, John Tonelli, and Charles Wong. And then one vote each for uh, Patrick Flatley. And I'll know if this guy's listening to the show because he knows who he is that voted for Patrick Flatley. Uh, Matt Martin. Similarly, the guy who voted for Hubie McDonough knows who he is. I believe he listens to the show, so uh, we'll find out. Uh, Mick Vakoda. Matthew Schneider, J.P. Parisi, Butch Goring, and Ed Westfall all receiving one vote. So that was a lot of fun to see, um, you know, see guys like LaFontaine and Turgeon up there and John Tonelli. Uh, some people outside the box, like I said, with Arbor and Torrey, uh, Ledecky, Charles Wong. Um, <laughs> and then you see guys like Pat Flatley and Hubie. It's just good to see some of those names, even though, realistically they're they're not getting anywhere near the Islanders Mount Rushmore and they would be the first ones to tell you that but it's good to see their names on there that brings us to the enforcer uh, Mount Rushmore now this one was very interesting to me now all right i am going to say one thing and then clarify it i technically have never done my Islanders Mount Rushmore because I can't whittle down five players into four spots. It's very difficult for me. Now, if you listen to my top 10 Islanders enforcers, you can easily say, hey, your, your four through one is your Mount Rushmore. And I guess you would be right. My issue is my number five is Gary Howitt. And I'm not sure how I can leave off Gary Howitt on the Islanders enforcer Mount Rushmore. So 
I'm going to let the cat out of the bag here for those of you who didn't listen, but do me a favor, go check out that episode because once I give you five through one, you have no idea who six through 10 were. And I also threw in a couple of honorable mentions, but my number five was Gary Howitt, as I said. My number four was Eric Cairns. My number three was Mick Vakoda. My number two was Bobby Nystrom. And my number one was Clark Gilly. So I guess if you want to be technical, my Mount Rushmore would be Gillies, Nystrom, Vakoda, and Eric Cairns. Can't argue with that. My problem is I, I have to find a way to get Gary Howitt in there. I, I think Gary Howitt, uh, I've said this a million times, I think Gary Howitt, his presence enabled Clark and Bob Nystrom to do much more than scrap. Um, Gary Howitt did a lot of the dirty work. And I implore you, please, go uh, down the Gary Howitt rabbit hole. I, I've done this before. I, I did it in that episode. Please go watch some Gary Howitt fights if you're not familiar with him. And if you are familiar with him, go watch him again. I love this guy. And it, it, it hurts me to do a Mount Rushmore and not include the Toy Tiger because he absolutely deserves to be there. But, again, he's my number five. So I guess technically he does not make my Mount Rushmore, which I, I just find unacceptable. But I could spin my wheels here all night talking about my own Mount Rushmore. But this is really about you guys. So I received several votes and a couple of surprises, um, but for the most part, not too many. What I will tell you is Mick Vakoda received the most votes. And if Mick is listening, I'm sure he's probably thinking, holy shit. Because for everything that Mick has done as an Islander for the organization, all the fights he's had, all the penalty minutes he's had, he's very humble about that. And he might be slightly embarrassed that he received more votes than Clark Gillies and Bob Nystrom. But he did. Mick Vakoda, 54 votes. Uh, the first entry on the Islander fans, Mount Rushmore of Enforcers. Uh, number two with 51 votes, of course, Clark Gillies. Rest in peace, Clark. Uh, if you didn't hear it, uh, please go back and listen to my Clark Gillies tribute episode. Um, you know, some really good insight from uh, a few of uh, a few former Islanders, both uh, players in the organization and front office people. Um, I love doing that episode. Unfortunately, the reason why I did that episode is that Clark passed away. But um, I really, really enjoy talking to those guys about Clark. So, uh, but Clark. Number uh, number two in votes, 51. Number three, Bob Nystrom, 35 votes. I think those three guys were on most people's Mount Rushmore. It's really the fourth spot that was uh, up for grabs for the most part. But according to the people who voted, the fourth entry for the Islander enforcer Mount Rushmore is the bomber. Kenny Baumgartner. And I was a little surprised at this, not because of what Kenny did here as an Islander. You guys know how much I love Bomber. And um, I wish his tenure here was a little bit longer. And I, I usually, when I talk about Bomber's time here with the Islanders, I refer to it as his reign of terror because he left his mark here big time. Uh, there was a time shortly after he got here, when he got here, I said, uh, you always saw number 16 jerseys all over the place in the crowd. And there really wasn't a close number two. Uh, Bomber was here a couple of months. 
maybe through that that first season. There were a lot of 24s towards the end of that season and going into the season after, and I think uh, he was the only one who came close. And um, you know, he was he was something special here. And that tag team of Bomber and Mick, uh, you got those two uh, two Western leaguers. That was really really fun times here. So it was cool to see Bomber make the Mount Rushmore. So that leaves someone out, uh, someone on my Mount Rushmore was fifth in votes. That was Eric Cairns. So Cairns got 21 votes. Sixth in voting, Gary Howitt with 19. Seventh, Matt Martin received 12 votes. Um, Next, we have a tie between Trevor Gillies and Richie Pilon, uh, both former guests of the show, with eight votes each. Then the votes dip a little bit. Um, (laughs) Billy Smith uh, received three votes. Brian Curran received three votes. And Michael Haley received three votes. Uh, then there is uh, three guys tied with two votes each. Uh, Ross Johnston, Eric Goddard, and Steve Webb all registered two votes each. Then for uh, one vote each, we have Zenon Kanopka, Robbie DeMaio, Pat Price, Chris Simon, Dennis Potvin, Ken Belanger, Darius Kasparitis, Aaron Asham, and Gordy Lane. So to recap, in the 48 hours I was counting the votes for the Islanders' Mount Rushmore of players, it's the four guys you'd expect, Mike Bossy, Brian Trottier, Dennis Podvin, Billy Smith, and for the Islander enforcer, Mount Rushmore, according to you, the fans, Mick Vakoda, Clark Gillies, Bobby Nystrom, and the bomber, Ken Baumgartner. So that was fun. I was glad I did that. Um, of course, some votes came in after that. And uh, it was a few posts, but um, I had basically said through Saturday night, and um, so it might have been another vote here or there, especially if it was for the regular Mount Rushmore. You know, it was those four guys. So I wasn't going to count it. And, um, you know, not, none of them were close enough where um, I got enough votes to to misplace, uh, not misplace, to replace anybody. So um, that'll bring us here to the episode, the, uh, the meat and potatoes of this episode. So uh, I titled this episode Death and Rebirth. And for those of you who are new listeners to the show, or new listeners to me, or the story I'm about to say. Um, 11 years ago yesterday, which was February 12th, 2011, um, I was involved in a very high-profile incident on a New York City subway. Now, with the anniversary coming up, which of course it was yesterday, but about a week or so ago, I was... um, just searching things on iTunes and I put in Maxim Gelman, who was the, uh, the murderer, the scumbag, the piece of shit, the, uh, pimple dick motherfucker who, uh, was the cause of all this. And, um, I found two podcasts that, uh, dealt in true crime and they were both, uh, entertaining podcast one uh one was by uh two women 
and one was hosted by a woman and the co-host was a man. Um, <clears throat> one was one. It seemed like they got a lot of their information from uh, Wikipedia, which, uh, as I think everybody knows, while most of the stuff on there is pretty accurate, there is some stuff. I mean, I could go on Wikipedia right now and change anything I want. And, um, you know, I don't know how soon it gets changed, if ever. Um, and a documentary. And I, I generally don't promote this documentary because it's horseshit. But if you're listening to this now, I'd really like to make something clear. Um, there have been two documentaries made about this uh, asshole, Maxim Gelman. And one of them is, is they're both part of a series. The first one was the killer speaks and that was on A and E and now it's, it's run constantly on, um, uh, I don't know, discovery ID. I don't know, but it's constantly on the, the grid on my TV. So I see the series on constantly. They replay that episode constantly. And I've had people say, Hey, I saw you on that, that documentary. And I always say, oh, the killer speaks. And they say, yeah. And I say, well, take that with a grain of salt. Um, I'm telling you about the killer speaks now. And I generally don't talk about it because I don't want to give it any more publicity. But uh, the killer speaks, the part about how Maxim Gelman was apprehended is a complete farce. It's utter and complete bullshit. Um they interviewed me for three and a half hours, the people with, uh, and it's not A&E, it's whomever the production company was. They interviewed me for three and a half hours. I gave them my story. I gave them the first person account that I'm going to give you folks in a few minutes. And then they interviewed a bunch of other people or they interviewed those people first, whatever. I don't know the exact order. Um, and I, I guess they figured that my account wasn't very, um, I don't know, trustworthy or whatever, uh, because then they spoke with people that worked for the NYPD and they ended up using the NYPD's version. And I, I guess because their version lines up a little bit with what Maxim Gelman says happened, which is funny because they're basically taking the word of two cowardly cops and a guy so jacked up on PCP that I'm surprised he could remember his name over somebody myself who all I had to, all I had that morning when I stopped this guy was a Wawa coffee and a sizzly. So I was under the influence of nothing. And I certainly wasn't a chicken shit like the two cops. I'm not patting myself on the back, but I was there. I was in the middle of it. They were hiding. We'll get into that. So whoever the production company was for the killer speak said, hmm, let's go with this account and let's interview people that are going to kind of go with that narrative. And that really pissed me off. And that really, really pissed off people in my family, especially my wife and especially my sister, who is a retired NYPD officer. And it really pissed off a lot of people that know me, many of them NYPD officers. So what I'm going to tell you is this. If you choose to watch that documentary, The Killer Speaks, 
know that I the most of it I believe is accurate for what I've heard in terms of the timeline. The morning of February 12th, don't believe a word of what you're told on that documentary because it's bullshit. Plain and simple bullshit. And I have said this a million times. Get me in a room with anybody on the train that day. I want it. I want it bad. And let's compare notes and let's see. Let's see who's right. Let's see. Okay. Hook us up to lie detectors. Hook us up to whatever you want. Put a judge in there. Put Jesus in there. Put whomever you want in there. Let's do it. Didn't happen. Um, I'd like to direct you to my Twitter feed. And this is uh, the at Joe underscore Lozito Twitter feed. Every day, every single day, I tweet out a documentary that has not been broadcast in this country. It's another series called Spree Killer or uh, no Killing Spree, Killing Spree. I'm sorry. This is a series that was done by a British production company, and they've had a lot of shows on TV over here, mostly on the networks that do true crime, like Discovery ID. For whatever reason, it wasn't picked up in this country, but it aired in a lot of different places all over the world. And um, because I was a part of this documentary, they sent me a copy, and uh, I tweet it out every day. So what I ask you to do is this. If you are so inclined to watch The Killer Speaks, because I now, because now I know... If you're curious and you haven't seen it, you're gonna you're going to want to watch that. No problem. But please, when you're done watching that, can you please go to my Twitter feed and watch the documentary that I post there? It's uh it's it's I titled it uh Joe Lazito Maxim Gelman documentary because I couldn't use the title. They uh removed it once before, so it's just under Joe Lazito Maxim Gelman documentary, it's on Vimeo. Please, it's 45 minutes. Go watch that documentary. It's way more accurate. And um, it tells you the truth about what happened. So the reason why I started talking about this is because, like I said, I listened to these two podcasts. And they were both entertaining. But like I said, the first one, um, you know, it's tough. When you get your facts off of, you know, like I said, Wikipedia or stuff like that. You never know. You just don't know how accurate it is. And and that and it's what I always say about this show when I do interviews with guests. It takes me forever to do my research because I, I when the when the interview's over and when you folks listen to this, I want you people when you're done to go, wow, that is the most extensive interview I've ever heard with that guy. And I want the the guest to say, wow, I can't believe he asked me that question. I, I haven't thought about that in 10 years. I haven't thought about that in forever. I want it to be an experience that the guest appreciates that I didn't waste their time and that, that you people appreciate because it makes it worth your while to listen. And when I hear podcasts that, I mean, most of the podcasts I listen to, I don't know the whole story because... They're, they may be talking about, you know, talking to another guest that I'm not completely familiar with their story, talking about news items that I'm not completely familiar with. But when you hear a podcast about something that you were a part of and they get the ending wrong, 
you know, I always say, <clears throat> excuse me, I always say that I'm easy to find. I'm easy to find. I'm on social media. I'm on all the platforms. You can find me. And I have never turned down an interview. And I'm always happy to talk about it because for me, since I got screwed by the justice system and put justice in quotes, all I have is getting the story out there. That's all I have. So I've never, ever turned down an interview and I still won't. So again, if you're going to do an interview or you're going to do a podcast or whatever about Maxim Gelman and, and the sequence of events, eventually you have to get to the ending. And if you want someone's account that was actually there, here I am easy to find. So, <coughs> excuse me. So I listen to these shows. Like I said, the first one, entertaining, but not entirely accurate. Second one was way more entertaining and way more accurate. And if I was prepared, I would absolutely tell you who those podcasts were. But I'm not. And my phone is dead. So uh, I don't have them. But really, it was just, um, I just again, um, if, if there are still shows being done on this subject and there are still people getting it wrong then obviously i'm not doing enough and i i, I thought i was and I, I really thought that by posting about it on social media i was doing enough to get the story out there but there's still people who are getting it wrong and they wouldn't get it wrong if i was able to take my case to court which we will discuss in a minute um but it's i have this platform i have this show and I have you people out there that listen to it, and um, I appreciate that. So many of you may have heard this already. This would be the third time I'm going to talk about this on the show. I'm not going to go into the as detailed about the, the timeline of Maxim Gelman and what he did, um, because that's already on here a couple of times, and uh, I really want to give more so... I really want to pick it up from when I got on the subway because um, if someone gets part of his timeline incorrect, I can't dispute that because I can only go by what I've read or what I've been told. But I can certainly tell you if you have the ending wrong. So again, I, I really want to focus on that today. So, uh, But like I said, I've never, ever turned down an interview. I'm very easy to find on social media. And um, more so with the first one that I listened to, I'm thinking, you know, if you want to know the whole story, you know, just reach out to me. Uh, second interview, I would have loved to, to chat with them. They were really funny. And, uh, you know, they did their homework. Uh, they didn't necessarily need me, but um, I did send them an email thanking them for their research on that. and. Um, that's really, I always do sort of a recap episode around the time, the anniversary, and um, that's what this is. But like I said, I don't want to go into the whole thing about Maxim Gelman's timeline. So what I will do <clears throat> is um, I will say that um, my portion of this story actually begins the night before. Now, Maxim Gelman's portion of the story begins earlier that day and that's february 11th and on february 11th maxim gelman uh started his reign of terror he murdered four people um i mean 
it's still it's still something I find very hard to wrap my head around that I was face to face with a killer. Um, and I, you know, he murdered his stepfather. He murdered, um, a young lady, Elena Polchenko, who, um, he was infatuated with, but obviously had better taste, wanted no part of him in a romantic setting. I believe they did run in similar circles at times, but um, Yelena had much better taste than to get romantically involved with him. Um, And he eventually murdered her. He almost decapitated her. Um, Before he uh, got to Yelena, he had uh, murdered her mother, Anna. And I always say that, um, you know, I'm assuming that there's a Mr. Bolchenko Anna's husband and Yelena's father. And um, a lot of people lost a lot of people that day, but uh, Mr. Bolchenko lost a wife and a daughter, and I, I can't fathom that. And, um, you know, it's just whenever I talk about this, it I always have to mention, uh, mention the other victims. Uh, they're not the other victims. They're the victims. They're the people who are murdered that... Um, uh, it's just just crazy. Uh, the fourth person that he murdered was Stephen Tannenbaum. He wasn't a stabbing victim. He was uh, run over by this asshole. He carjacked a few cars, and he was uh, driving full speed, never stopped, and uh, basically just blitzed right through Stephen Tannenbaum. He ended up being the, the fourth casualty of this piece of shit. And, um, you know, then... Uh, As he's on the run, he's carjacking people, he's attacking people, slashing people left and right. And um, while that's going on at night, the um, fight night at the Coliseum, the rematch between the Islanders and Penguins. And uh, if you listen to uh, my Clark Gillies saga, um, uh, Clark, Trevor Gillies, I'm sorry. I have Clark Gillies in the brain with everything that's gone on recently. But if you uh, if you listen to my uh, Trevor Gillies saga here, uh, Trevor really took you in depth about uh, what was going on in that Islanders locker room before the game and on the ice. And if you're an Islanders fan or a Penguins fan or, or a hockey fight fan, you know exactly what I mean when I say fight night. I call it the revenge game. I kind of like the revenge game better. Uh, but fight night, it seems to go by fight night uh, in – the general general populace calls a fight night, but I kind of like the revenge game. So um, that game happens. I am wired. I mean, absolutely wired when the game's over. And um, now I can't sleep. And I'm up to the wee hours of the morning. I have to get up early the next day because I'm living in Philadelphia and I'm working in New York. And um, my shift starts at 930. Um, so I get up and I'm tired. I mean, let's, let's be honest. I didn't get a lot of sleep and, uh, I'm tired, but uh, all I wanted to do was get to work that day and talk about the game to people who really don't give a shit about the game. I just needed, uh, to talk about this with somebody. Like I said, people I work with, they don't give a shit, but it was okay. Cause I was just so jacked up and I wanted to talk about it with them. So eventually on the morning of February 12th, 2011, as I get to Manhattan and get to Penn Station, uh, 
my life has changed forever as I got on an uptown number three train. So if you're familiar with New York subways and you're familiar with Lincoln Center, uh, if you get on the one train at Penn Station, uh, the one is the local train. It makes all stops. And I believe it's the fifth stop is Lincoln Center. That's the train I take almost every day. Now that day, they were uh, doing construction on the tracks. So the one, the two, and the three train were all running express. What does that mean? Well, that means if I go on the platform for the one, which is normally a local track, that train is going to run express. And it's going to mimic the stations that the express trains, the two and the three, that's going to mimic those stops. So even though they're on different platforms, they're going to make the same stops. In other words, no uptown trains that day were local. Now, I don't know if once you got past Lincoln Center, if they went back to local, I have no idea. But from Penn Station to Lincoln Center, no local trains. So what I have to do? I have to take the train from Penn Station to 72nd Street, which is the station after Lincoln Center, get off. I could either take a downtown subway for one stop, or what I would normally do when I had to do that is just walk from 72nd to 66th Street. No big deal. Okay. So as I'm standing on the platform for the one train, I have this great idea. Well, this train's running express. And if I go to the other platform, those trains are running express. But the difference is on that platform, there's two trains running on that platform. On this platform, there's one. So what does that mean? Double the trains on that platform. Double the double the opportunity to get on a train and get to work quicker. So it's a <clears throat> it's a situation that uh, I've had many times before that day and one I've had many times after that day and before and after I have never, I never did. And I never have since left the one platform to go to the two or three for whatever reason, if you believe in things happen for a reason that day, I said, I'm going to go on that platform. So I did something I normally don't do. I went to the other platform. And now the first train that pulls up is an uptown number three train. So this is where my life is changed forever. I um, Generally in New York, if you're not familiar, and maybe it's like this in your where you live too, if you have a transit system. Um, what I noticed is whether it's the Long Island Railroad, whether it's Jersey Transit in New Jersey, whether it's SEPTA in Philadelphia, whether it's the subways, most people, when they get on the platform, many times it's in the center of the platform. And many people don't walk too far from where they get on the platform, which means generally the middle of the train is the most congested. That's why I would always walk to the front or the back. It's usually a lot emptier. And that day I did. I walked to the front of the train. And as I suspected, it was a lot emptier than the middle. Now, this was a Saturday morning, so it wasn't like a rush hour train during the week. But 
It's still Saturday morning in New York. You got families going places. You have people from the night before doing the walk of shame. I guess doing the ride of shame. Then doing the walk of shame. It was uh, moderately filled, the car I was in. And um, the doors, normally they open. They're open for, what, 10 seconds, 15 seconds? I don't know. And then they close and you proceed to the next stop. Well, this day, I get on the train and the door stayed open for a little bit. And then next thing I know, there's uh, two police officers get on and they go right into where the engineer drives the train. I was uh, sitting right behind the engineer, separated by a wall. Now, I have been on subways many times before with police officers. I've never seen them get into the motorman's booth, ever. They always stay in the main part of the car, whether they're there for a reason or they are going station to station. They always do that. There's no reason for them to go in with the motorman. So I did I did think that was a little weird, especially because the uh, the motorman's booth is not very big. There's already the motorman in there, and now you have you had two more people, and one of the officers was a very big man, so I can't imagine there was too much room left after he got in, but the three of them were in there, and after, and, and while they're getting on the train, and while they're in there, I hear their radios, and the radios are going crazy. I can't hear what they're saying, but there's a lot of action on there, and again, I don't know. It's a Saturday morning in New York. Who the hell knows what happened the night before? I don't. Our Philadelphia paper that day, it's the super early edition. So anything that happened in New York the day before, not in there. Nothing in there at all about it. So finally, finally the doors close. And, you know, subway's like a car, like a motorcycle doesn't take off it slowly accelerates and then it hits a speed and you go not this day this day we crawled and we were going very slow again thinking this is weird but who the fuck knows it's new york it's new i always say it's new york city who the hell knows what's going on but then the weird got weirder and as i'm sitting there now again i'm right behind the engineer and on the wall where I am, it's basically uh, a wall with a door. Door's in the middle. Door has a window. And this guy comes up and starts pounding on the door. Says, let me in. Now, he doesn't know that on the other side of the door, there's two police officers. He thinks he's talking to the engineer. So a voice from the other side says, who are you? And this guy says, I'm the police. And the voice on the other side says, you're not the police. And with that, this gentleman that knocked on the door that wanted to get in, turns around and walks to a seat. Now, I'm sitting there again going, this is really weird. But could it just been, I don't know. Homeless guy acting up. I don't know. He looked a little dirty. But again, it's New York City. I don't know. But two things happened that got my attention very quickly. 
One, when, <coughs> when, excuse me, when this gentleman walked away, he sat down next to a young woman on the train. And before he even hit the seat, <coughs> excuse me, before he even hit the seat, she was up and gone out to the other end of the car. Like, like magic. Again, it's New York City. But then there was a guy standing next to me. And that guy bolts right to the door. And he looks like he is scared to death. And what does he do? He is tapping on the window. This guy is doing the, <laughs> the best he can to try to get the cop's attention and not alert the guy that was just up there. So he's tapping aggressively, but trying to be quiet, trying to get their attention. And he's tapping on the window and waving them out and tapping on the window and waving them out. Nothing happens. They don't come out. They don't do anything. And while this guy's doing this, he's looking over his shoulder at the first guy. And now what happens is that guy decides, well, he's going to come back. So this guy that's up there now hightails it right back next to me. And now I can't even say it's New York City because now shit's getting real and I don't know what the fuck's going on. But like I said, shit's getting real. It got real, real in the, within the next 10 seconds because that guy, the first guy that was banging on the door trying to get in, he's walking back up to the door. He stops about three feet from the door about two feet from me, I'm still seated, he looks down at me, I look up at him, we lock eyes, looks me dead in the face, reaches into the back of his jacket, I guess the back of his pants, whatever, and he says, you're going to die, you're going to die, he takes out this giant knife, eight inch blade, plunges it right into my left cheek. Well, what do you say to that? Um... <laughs> I, uh, honestly, people always ask me, like, what were you thinking? And, um, he didn't give me time to think, you know, uh, the only thing I could say is I knew if I didn't do anything, I'm done. I'm done. You're, you're never prepared for someone to plunge an eight inch knife into your face. I can, I can tell you that. I think even if you take certain uh, self-defense training and there's uh, scenarios where a guy with a knife attacks you, I, I don't know. I don't know if you're really ever prepared for that. If you can kind of get your mind right and go, okay, well, if this guy over here with his hand in his pants comes out with an eight-inch knife and stabs me in the face, I'm going to do this. Like I, it, it, it took me longer to tell you what happened than it than actually happened because it was so quick. Um, and the one thing I will tell you is, is, uh, while it was quick, it did seem like it was in slow motion, if, if that makes any sense to you. And, uh, I saw the blade, like when he pulled the knife out, I got a great look at it. I mean, it was right there and the blade was filthy. Now, I don't know who the fuck this guy is. So I'm thinking he's a dirt bag, probably just dirty, whatever. Uh, what I found out later after I found out who he was and what he had done was that the stuff on the knife was not dirt. It was the blood of the people he had stabbed and murdered and attacked. So keep that in your, uh, in your brain there. Um, 
but yeah, so that's what happened. It was, uh, you know, he used the same knife to attack me as he did to murder everyone else and, and attack the other people. And I'll never forget looking at that knife. And, I, and I've actually posted a picture of that knife. And it's actually in the graphic of uh, of this episode. So, um, yeah, so he, he, um, he puts it in my cheek, pulls it out. And now I know, like I said, I have a choice. If I don't do anything, I'm dead. He's going to cut me to ribbons. And um, instinct just took over, you know, like, you know, people call me a hero and all that stuff. And I'm never comfortable with that. I'm really not. And I appreciate it. Don't get me wrong. I I really do. Everybody that's ever reached out to me, uh, especially on the anniversaries, um, I really appreciate it. I'm just, I've never been comfortable with the hero thing. And um, I'm never going to be comfortable with the hero thing. Um, this guy put me in a position where I had to make a decision, fight or flight, you know, and uh, and I chose to fight because if I didn't fight, I would definitely be dead. Now, if I fight back, he still may kill me. I mean, after all, I'm not a trained fighter and he has an eight inch blade and the odds are not in my favor. Um, so, but I knew if I knew that if, uh, if I had any chance of surviving, I had to fight back. So, um, I kind of just leapt out of the seat and I wanted to attempt a single leg takedown. So if you're not familiar with wrestling or MMA, single leg take, I mean, think about it. What's the easiest way to get someone down? You go for their legs. But because I don't know what I'm doing, uh, I shot in too high and I shot in around his waist. And what it essentially became was a football tackle. And um, which was effective because it did the job. I got him down. The downside of that is it gave him free reign to absolutely butcher my head. And um, he got me three times really good in the head, including one. Um, it's it's the photo. If you look at the thread I posted on Twitter, uh, it's the photo on the back of my head that goes down to basically the base of my neck. And... Um, that one was the worst one. I remember seeing a photo of it at the ADA's office. And uh, that one, you could actually see part of my skull. The The skin had spread apart so much that you could see part of my skull uh, before they stitched me back up. So, like I said, while I was able to take him down, uh, he's just carving my head like a pumpkin. And um, But I'm not feeling anything, to be honest with you. I, I mean... I've said it before that I've heard, I heard him grunting as he was putting a knife into my head. Like, <clears throat> like I heard that. I'll never forget that. I felt the pressure of the blade, but the actual cutting, I didn't feel. And I, and I would imagine that's due to all the adrenaline. I didn't feel anything. I felt the pressure, no pain. So, um, like I said, I got him down. I was on top of him and uh, he still has the knife. I mean, it's like, what else do I have to do? But he still has a knife. He's on his back, and he's flailing up at me. Uh, first time I try to catch his hand now, he's right-handed like I am. So if he's he's we're facing each other, he's flailing up with his right hand. I'm trying to catch it with my left hand, not my natural hand. Um, and I miss, and he cuts me in the thumb, basically that web part of your thumb, because you know you're looking at your hands right now. Uh, it's that part of the thumb that connects, connects it to the hand. So that webbing party cut me down there, sliced the tendon. Um, second time I tried to catch, I missed, and he sliced me in the tricep. 
And then the third time that uh, he he tried to stab me again, I was able to catch his wrist. I slammed his hand down, and the knife popped out. Now, there two things happened at this moment. Um, one, I tried to get the knife. And uh, I I have said this a million times. If this makes you uncomfortable, I really don't know what to tell you. But I I have been nothing but honest about this entire incident. If I was able to get the knife, I would have put it right through his chest. I wouldn't, my heart rate wouldn't have risen at all. Because at this moment, I have blood pouring out of me. I think I'm I'm going to die. Like at this point, it was so chaotic. I really didn't have time to to really assess the situation because it's him or me. And what I did know was I got blood pouring out of me. And if I get this knife, there's one way to end this. And in the frame of mind I was in at the time, that was just animal. That was, um, it, w- it was basically two animals at that point. You know, no regard. He had no regard for my life. And to be honest with you, I had no regard for his. So had I been able to reach that knife, I would have plunged the knife so far into his chest, I would have hit the bottom. I would have hit the subway floor. I have no problem saying that. In hindsight, probably best that I didn't get a hold of the knife. Now, it's easy to say that now since I survived, but if it meant his life or mine, then it's ab- it absolutely would not have been a good thing that I didn't get the knife. But I always say to people, uh, they may be uncomfortable hearing that, but like I said, I, I've been nothing but honest about this whole situation. And uh, had I been able to get that knife, he would not be here right now. And no question. Um, but I didn't. But what did happen was the two police officers on the train that were in with the engineer decided to come out. And I got a tap on the shoulder from the male officer saying, you can get up now. We got him. And, um, you know, as I just said, the whole situation at the time was just one big ball of chaos. And I'm like, I just remember thinking, okay. They got him, so now I'm going to get up. Now, while this was going on, someone had pulled the emergency brake, so the train had come to a stop. The problem is the train did not come to a stop at a station. It came to a stop in the tunnel. So now we're in the tunnel between 34th Street and 42nd Street. Not moving. I get up. I sit on the subway seat. And now I look around and I notice that there are not as many people in the subway car as there were when we when I first got on the train. And those that are, are towards the other end of the car or in the next car looking through the window. And I don't blame any of them. I've had people say, aren't you mad at the people that didn't help or the people that uh, left? And I say, no way. Like, you're these people got on the train that day 
just going from station to station, going from point A to point B. Nowhere in the manual does it say, just so you know, at some point, there might be an attempted murder on the train. You may have to get involved. No, I, I, I don't hold any of those people that left the, the car to go into the other car, um, <laughs> go two cars down, three cars down, or stayed in the car but went to the other end. I don't. Jesus Christ, no. They're just looking out for themselves. And, you know, I, I don't blame them. No animosity towards any of those people. Um, but it was noticeable. <laughs> it was noticeable that, that if you cut that car in half, the side I was on was pretty empty. And the other side was pretty empty too, but there were a few more people. But the second car, lots of people. Lots of people in that car. Um, now, I am sitting on the subway seat. I got my head down. And uh, the blood, yeah, there's a lot of blood, a lot of blood coming out of me. And uh, the analogy I've used since I started talking about this was the next time you're in the shower, turn your back to your shower head and have the water hit you in the back of the neck and watch the water come down both sides of your chest. That's what my blood was doing that day. And uh, I get I get chills thinking about it because... I can see it. I just see it. I'm, I'm looking at myself right now, and, and I see the blood coming out of both sides. And it's uh, it's it's an ominous feeling. It's it's a dark feeling when it hits you that you might die. I know that Nickelback is not, uh, it's fun to make fun of Nickelback. I, I don't know why. I like Nickelback. I think they're okay. Uh, but Nickelback put out a video for their song, Saving Me. And 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 it's a pretty interesting video. And um, I'm not going to tell you what the video is about. I, I'd rather you go and look for it yourself. But I want you to understand, when I saw that video, I saw that video after everything happened to me. And when I saw that video, I, I put myself in that video and I wondered what, and you'll have no idea what I'm talking about unless you see it. I wondered what the numbers on my head would have looked like. And again, you have no idea what I'm talking about unless you've seen it. But I can only imagine how fast they were going. And it, and it got to me. It really did. It got to me the first time I saw it. And even now, sometimes I'll watch it every now and then. And it still gets to me. Like I put, I think about it and I think about what my numbers would have looked like and how fast they would have been going. And all I'm thinking about is my family. All I'm thinking about is getting off that train and seeing my wife and seeing my kids. But I'm in a tunnel on the subway and we're not moving. And the body holds a lot of blood, but you can only lose so much of it. And I'm scared, I'm scared to death. I'm scared shitless that I'm not going to get off this train. And um, I look to my left and I see this asshole that just tried to kill me, squirming. The, the big cop, the male cop, is having a hard time handcuffing this guy. The female cop, I I've used the term useless before. If I haven't used the term beyond useless, I'm going to use it now. She was beyond useless. 
You see your partner down there struggling with a perp. Struggling to handcuff him. Get your fucking hands dirty and help him. Don't stand over him and go, should I mace him? Should I mace him? Like, like it's your first day out of the academy. No, you shouldn't mace him, dummy. You're in a closed subway car. Where does that mace go? It stays in the car. I know that. No, get on your fucking hands and knees and help this guy handcuff him. She never did. Who did? A person named Alfred Douglas. Now, of course, at the time, I didn't know what this person's name was. But this is just a passenger that went over and helped Terrence Howell. I'm trying to think of adjectives to describe him, but the only one I could think of is cowardly. Um, Alfred Douglas goes over, helps Terrence Howell handcuff this piece of shit. And um, I'm just still sitting there, bleeding. As Alfred gets up, there's still people in the car. And Alfred basically looks at all of them and says, how could none of you people do anything? You see this guy here? He's going to bleed to death. He's bleeding, and you're just standing there watching. How could you people not do anything? And Alfred came over, and as I said, I got stabbed three times in the head. The one that you could see my skull was the deepest. And Alfred, who doesn't know me, doesn't know my history, doesn't know anything about me, with his bare hand came over and applied pressure to my deepest wound. And uh, with that, a woman on the train had some tissues or some napkins. I don't know what they were. She gave them to him. He applied pressure with that. But if we're being honest, they were probably saturated within five seconds. But Alfred did that. He stayed there with me and um, tried to calm me down, tried to reassure me. And I I always wonder, you know, I've had the opportunity to speak to Alfred after and and, uh, I never asked him. And I really, I really should. I want to know, like, what was Alfred thinking? Like, is he going to basically watch me die? And and I wonder what that does to a person, you know, and, um, you know, people call me a hero. People call me the subway hero. Uh, to me, Alfred is a hero because Alfred was the one who helped useless Terrence Howell handcuff Maxim Gelman. And Alfred was the one who I, I, I honestly think if it wasn't for Alfred, I wouldn't be here today. So uh, to me, Alfred is the hero. And I will say his name forever when I tell this story because after the fact, Alfred was interviewed by the NYPD. The NYPD interviewed everybody. Once once the scene was over on the train and I was off the train and Maxim Gelman was off the train, everybody on that train was interviewed by the NYPD. NYPD knew exactly what Alfred Douglas did. And the NYPD in New York City never once gave Alfred any recognition, never once mentioned his name. Instead, they gave credit to an off-duty police officer who wasn't even on the train. Never once mentioned Alfred, but gave credit to an officer named Marcelo Razzo. Next time I see Marcelo Razzo will be the first time. Marcelo Razzo was not on the train, but the NYPD statement says he was off duty and he helped apprehend Maxim Gelman, which is a fucking lie. So Maxim Gelman's now under control. I'm bleeding. We're still stopped. From the back of the train now, you got two, three cops at a time. They're coming on, coming on, 
blitzing right past me. No one says shit to me, whatever. So be it. They go and they're talking to Howell. They're talking to Tamara Taylor, the useless woman cop. And um, we're still not moving. But I'm still bleeding. Um, more cops come on. And um, eventually, <laughs> like I'm sitting there really, my head's down. I see the cops walking past me and I grab, I, I, I like grab one of them by the hand. And I go, uh, I go, what, what's going on? Well, we're getting there, you know, whatever he said. And I go, Hey, um, see the, I don't remember if I asked this cop if he had a wife or if he had kids, but there were two, two conversations and say the first one was, Hey, are you married? And they said, yeah. And I said, I'm married too. I need to get off this train. I gotta, you gotta get me off this train. I can't die here. Don't worry. Don't worry. We'll get you off. We're working on it. Don't worry. Okay. A couple of more minutes go by. More cops get on. Everyone's kind of casual. Like this asshole's apprehended. They all got him. Not too chaotic, but there's still somebody here that's pretty much in a life or death situation. Nobody else really seems to care besides me and Alfred. Another cop walks by. Again, same thing. Hey, do you have kids? Yeah, I have kids. I'm like, you know, I got two little boys at home. And um, oh, this this is the part that fucks with me all the time. Oh, I say I got... Uh, I got two little boys at home. And, uh, I got to get off this train. You got to get me off this train. I can't die. Don't worry. Don't worry. The paramedics are on their way. And I go, we're in the tunnel. What do you mean? Well, you see how we came on from the back? Yep. Paramedics are coming from the back. So why aren't we moving? We can't move the train until all the police officers are off the tracks. We can't put any of them in danger. Okay. <laughs> okay. I can I can tell you one person's in danger right now, but priorities, I guess, you know. And then the weirdest thing happened. After about 20, 25 minutes, the train starts moving. And now while I'm happy that the train is moving, I'm like, wait, hold on one second. Hold on. I thought the paramedics were coming. We're, we can't move. Someone says, no, no, no. They're, uh, they're waiting for you at 42nd Street. Okay. I was just told minutes ago that they were coming for me this way. Another lie. Never. They were never coming for me. They were waiting at 42nd Street. And the guys, well, they're at 42nd Street. Uh, the station has been cleared. They're waiting for you on the platform. Okay. We pull into 42nd Street. Cops come in. More cops. They get the piece of shit Maxim Gelman off the train. Well, two, two paramedics came in for me first. While they're with me, the cops take out the trash. Now, 
paramedic. They bring the stretcher up there to where I'm sitting. And uh, they lift me up off the subway seat to put me onto the stretcher. As they're putting me down, I lose consciousness. And not completely. And when I lost consciousness, I did so with my eyes open. And um, I can still hear what's going on behind me. And um, the female cop, the useless female cop that I've mentioned already, Tamara Taylor, she's behind me. She's talking to another cop. And they're talking about me. And um, I hear her call me likely in the sentence. She calls me likely. Now, for those of you who've heard the story, you know what that means. For those of you who haven't heard the story, I'm going to hold off on that and tell you what that means in a little bit. But shortly, you know, it was a few seconds that I was out. Now I wake up. And now is the first time I feel any pain. Now all the, I guess it was part of an adrenaline dump. No more adrenaline. The pain is, it's beyond description, but I'll do my best to describe it. So I shave my head and I, I equate the pain. And again, thankfully, I don't know for sure, but the way I describe it is if you take my bald dome and douse it in gasoline and then light it on fire, that's what it felt like. If I could imagine what that feels like, I would equate it to getting my head stabbed three times. That's what it felt like. And I was, I mean, wow, the pain was ridiculous. Um, so the paramedics and police, they um, bring me up the stairs, no small feet. And um, they get me up there. I get to the, uh, almost to the top of the stairs. Um, I don't know. If this was, uh, there was an officer up there, I don't know if it was his first day. I don't know if he was blind. I don't know if he was being a smartass. Um, Maxim Gelman and I don't look anything alike, but this guy, I don't know, maybe he was practicing to be a comic. I don't know, but he says to the other cops, is that the perp or the Vic? Really? Is that the perp or the Vic? <laughs> I'm like, come on, man. Are you kidding me? Right? But, again, like I said, I don't know. Maybe he's... Maybe it's the first day. I don't know. Maybe he's got eye problems. But, they put me in the ambulance. And, um... Paramedics were amazing. They were amazing. And, thank God, it was a Saturday morning. Because... There was very little traffic in New York. And while I was on the in the ambulance, I was talking to the one of the paramedics. There was one in the ambulance with me, one guy driving. And I'm like, do you guys have any painkillers? My head is killing me. And um, he said, no, we can't keep painkillers in the ambulance. They won't last too long. And I actually laughed at that. And he does have a point. I mean, they wouldn't. Um, and, and I just remember saying, please just keep talking to me. Don't let me fall asleep. Because... You know, again, I don't know. I, I still, I'm still worried I'm going to die. Like I, I'm worried that I've seen my family for the last time that morning. I, I still am concerned that if I fall asleep, I'm not waking up. And I just kept. I remember I just kept saying to him, "Talk to me. Just talk to me. Keep me up." Uh, one thing I would like to say is, um, it, it's really weird how things happen. 
I don't know. It's really weird. A few years later, I'm sitting in Vincent's, the best Italian restaurant on Long Island. And uh, I actually ended up sitting next to the paramedic. That helped save my life. I mean, <laughs> how does that happen, right? Like, how how does that happen? But it's true. I actually ended up sitting next to one of the paramedics, and uh, I, I like I still don't know what to say about that. But it's it's true. It was wild. Um, but as I was asking them for painkillers that day, they said, "Listen, uh." They're waiting for you at the hospital. They know you're coming, and they got the morphine drip ready to go. And I said, okay. And and I, and I, I know. I just kept saying, please just talk. Let's talk, talk, talk. Keep me awake. We get to the hospital. They get me off the uh, ambulance. They wheel me in. And I go into a room where there maybe started out with 10 people. There may have been 20 people in there. And I got hands going everywhere, cutting my clothes off and I'm sitting there going, what are you cutting off all my clothes for? He said, he got me up here. And they go, well, we don't know. So we got to make sure he didn't get anywhere else, which, again, I understand. And uh, I'm just on this table, and they're just <laughs> they're cutting me, cutting my clothes off. And while I'm there, a police officer comes to the the head of the, uh, the bed. I call it a bed. It felt, I think it was more like a table. He comes to the head of the bed, and he shows me a mugshot. And he says, um, is this the guy that did this to you? And I said, yes. And he said, you're a hero. I said, I'm not a hero. Why am I a hero? And he goes, well, that guy killed four people last night. And uh, I always say it. I always have to pause after I hear that because I, when, when uh, I mean, what do you say to that? Seriously, what do you say to that? You have a cop here telling me that the guy who just tried to murder me murdered four people the night before. I, I mean, it just is. To this day, 11 years later, I, I just still don't know how to react to that. It it takes my breath away. It does. I mean, I didn't focus on the part of him calling me a hero because, like I said, I don't think I am. I focus on the part where he killed four people. And two seconds before that, I got all these people in this room put, you know, putting bandages on my head, you know, clean, trying to clean me up, cutting my clothes off. It's just this whole chaotic scene. And then he tells me what he tells me. And all of a sudden, all those people weren't there anymore. It was just me in like this, this state where I, I just, it, I hadn't, I didn't know how to absorb it. I had no idea how to absorb that news. Um, but you have to, right? Like you have to absorb it. So anyway, um, they get me kind of stable. They get the morphine going and it didn't take long. And, uh, I wasn't feeling too much pain anymore. And, um, they give me an MRI, I think. They did a bunch of tests. Now uh, I end up in a room. It's, I guess it's more like a triage. It's not It's not really a room. I guess it was separated, you know, by curtains. And um, 
in the room is a, a detective, maybe two detectives, a detective and a cop. I don't really remember, but um, the one detective, really nice guy. Um, he's like talking to me, you know, how are you doing, whatever, what happened, and telling him. And uh, he's like, well, you want to call your family, I bet. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So uh, he says, well, I'll, you know, give me your phone. I'll call, I'll call your family. I said, listen, you know, my wife, uh, she's working. Uh, she's doing the books for her job. It's, it involves money. And uh, we normally don't pick up calls from numbers we don't know. Because he had actually said, give me her number and I'll call her from my phone. And, and uh, I go, if you call her from your phone, she's not going to pick up. So he's like, well, let me try. So we called her from his phone. She didn't know the number. She didn't pick up. I think he tried twice. Um, so I go, hey, give me my phone. I'll call her. Okay. So I think I think a lot of times guys have weird senses of humor. Uh, we find things funny that women will never find funny for the most part. Um, so I've I've laughed at dumb shit before that Andrea would never laugh at, but. Um, I call her and, uh, she's like, Hey, what's up? I'm busy. And, um, I go, Hey, uh, I just want to know there was an incident on the train today. Uh, I'm okay, but I was stabbed a bunch of times and she's just like, Joe, I don't have time for this. Like I'm almost done with the money. I don't have time for this. I got to go. And I go, uh, I go, no, no, no. I go. And really? And she's like, Joe, I gotta go. I gotta go. Um, so I, I take a break and I I just take a deep breath and I go, uh, Andrea, listen to me very carefully. <laughs> and I think at this point I actually chuckled because I knew this is exactly what was going to happen. I said, Andrea, listen. I said, there was an incident on the train today. I was stabbed a bunch of times. I'm okay, though. But you're going to have to come up. You're going to have to come up to the city. And this is, you know, the part on the train where I have to talk about my family and this part are the absolute worst parts of the story. And people go, well, wouldn't the worst parts be that you got stabbed? And I go, well, I guess, yeah, but the parts that involve my family are really difficult for me to talk about because I think as a man, you want to be there for your family no matter what. And, and you want to be there for your wife and your kids during the worst possible times. But if you being injured is that worst possible time and you can't be there, uh, just something that it just bugs me to this day and it's hard to talk about. So I'm trying to really be strong here, not not break down again. But I just, after I said that, I just heard, I just heard the life just drain from her over the phone. If there's a way to, describe that i could hear it leaving her body and she started screaming oh god yeah she started screaming and uh uh the detective uh he he took the phone and basically said look i'm gonna call you from my number from my phone just uh you know pick up pick up the phone oh yeah so um He basically calls her and says, I'm at Bellevue Hospital. And um, 
that um she should pack a bag, you know, pack a bag. I, I think I don't, you know, she needs a bag of clothes and. I need some clothes and the boys, obviously, you know, we're going to be there for a couple of days. So, uh, once that was, uh, once he hung up with my wife, he asked me about, uh, my other family. You know, I said, well, my dad is in Kansas. I said, once we're, once we're settled here, I'll, I'll give him a call. I'll let him know. Um, because he, he doesn't know he's not seeing the news. Um, I'll, I'll just call him myself. I said, uh, my sister is actually a cop. I said, uh, if you call my sister and give her the details, um, she can call everybody else. So, um, I gave him my sister's number. She picked up and, um, he was talking to her and, I think he just said to her, look, please let your mom know. And, you know, Andrew's family, you know, my family, my in-laws and stuff. And then that's what happened. So now um, everybody was coming from Long Island except Andrea and my kids. They were coming from Philadelphia. So now I know you're thinking that, hey, you're in a hospital bed with seven stab wounds. It's got to be the worst part. Ah, uh, you know, the worst part is being in the hospital with seven stab wounds, worrying about your wife and your kids. Cause now, um, my wife has to leave work. My kids are 10 and seven at the time. They have to go home, pack a bag. This has to be so confusing for my kids. Um, she's got to try to explain it to them, but they don't know what they're walking into. All my wife knows is that I've been stabbed several times. And, uh, you know, they have no idea what you're walking into. So me in that bed at the time, not knowing when my wife was going to get there with my sons, that was the worst part because I don't have time to worry about myself. I don't care about myself. I want to make sure that they get up here quickly. and. Um, you know, and I knew they were going to be up here after everybody else. Cause like I said, everyone's coming from Long Island. So once, um, once everybody got there, um, then I knew, okay, I don't know how much longer, but, um, you know, hopefully Andrea and the boys will be here shortly. So, uh, my sister came in, she was talking to me. She was talking to the detective. My, my sister just says to me, like, like I said, she's a cop. What happened? I told her what happened, and I told her, uh, you know, basically everything I told uh, you people here. And when I got to the part about Tamara Taylor calling me likely, my sister turned white. And she goes, whoa, 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 Joseph, what did you just say? That's what she calls me when uh, things are uh, things are serious. I get the Joseph. Not in trouble, because I don't get Joseph James, but... I said, she called me likely. And, uh, my sister, like I said, again, she's a cop. She speaks the same language. She goes, uh, you know, likely means likely to die. And, uh, again, it's one of those moments where, how do you react to that? And I think it was at that point where I kind of figured out that the cops on the train that day, if their actions didn't speak volumes, 
they were pretty much ready for me to fucking die because they had their guy. He's killed four people already. He's injured several others. What's one more guy? It doesn't matter to them. They have their guy. So, and ultimately, had I died, then the truth, everything I'm telling you now and will continue to tell you, well, that dies with me. The uh, revelation that likely means likely to die was the exclamation point on the whole thing. Um, but, you know, I got to see my sister. I got to see my mom, uh, you know, my in-laws. And uh, once that kind of settled down and the, the doctors came in and they were going to they were going to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. I said to my sister, I said, please do me a favor. Can you call Andrew to find out where they are? Because I can't, I'm, I'm antsy here and I'm not antsy because I don't know what they're going to do to my head here. I'm antsy because I don't know where they are and I'm worried. So she said, yeah, yeah. I'm like, please. I said, just go outside when they pull up, just grab their car, you know, park wherever and just have them come in. Yeah, no problem. No problem. So the doctor basically tells everyone, look, we got to, we got to work on them now. And okay. So, um, basically doc, and again, most, uh, there were every doctor that worked on me that day, every, every, uh, nurse, uh, great. The plastic surgeon was a bit of a tool. Um, thankfully he didn't have to do anything to me because he was just there for, um, my thumb and my knuckle. And I decided that I didn't want him to do anything because I wasn't really worried about the scars, that stitches would be fine. But, you know, he was a bit of a prick, like an arrogant prick, you know, and I'm glad I didn't uh, need him to do anything for me. But the regular regular uh, doctors that um, were going to take care of my head and, and stitch me up, they were awesome. And uh, it's funny when I think about it now that I just got stabbed seven times and the doctor, when he, before he put in the... Uh, um, I don't know. And, you know, every year I say this and I don't, <laughs> um, it's not Novocaine is what they put in your teeth to numb your gums and stuff. When they put in the numbing agent, let's call it that. He goes, I'm really sorry, but this is going to hurt. And, uh, I probably said something smart, Alec, like, oh man, it's, it's all my morning has been whatever I said, whatever. But he just, he was warning me. He goes, look, this is, this is going to make us be able to fix you up. But, while it's going in, this is going to hurt. And fuck, was he right? Oh my God. And and my head was so jacked up. They had to, uh, they had to put in a bunch of it. But once that stuff coursed through all the veins of my head and everything else, they could have hit me with a sledgehammer. I wouldn't have felt it. I mean, they, they were amazing. So I, I, I tell people that's when I got my head. Um, there were the three, three cuts on my head were stitched and stapled and um stitches are are one thing i have had stitches before the stapling was a little weird because again i didn't feel the staples go in in terms of the the sharp edges going in but it was just like the pressure like the and you just feel it going into your head it's just like the pressure going into your head it's kind of like when you see uh on the home the home shows on HGTV and they got that nail gun and they're just like, tink, 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 tink. it was kind of like that. So that was very weird, but I didn't feel it. So that was okay. Um, 
So ultimately, the damage was um, was three wounds to my head, uh, one on the right side of my head, two on the back, uh, the wound under my left eye. Um, I got a cut on my knuckle here, my, my middle knuckle, and um, my left tricep and my left thumb. So those are the, those are the seven wounds that I sustained. Um, eventually I hear my wife and my kids, I'm in, I'm still in that triage area behind the curtain. I hear them and, uh, I, I makes me, makes me nauseous to think about what they were wondering, what they were going to see. Fortunately, most of the damage was to the side and back of my head. You know, my left eye was busted up pretty good and uh, had a black eye and I had the stitches. But for the most part, all the damage was on the side of my head and the back of my head. So I remember when they opened the curtain, I mean, my eyes just lit up like it was Christmas Day. So, uh, and I, I know, I know that I just got the biggest smile on my face. And uh, I think that kind of helped, helped them. I do. I think, uh, you know, if they would have walked in and I would have been unconscious, uh, that probably would have been hard. Or, or if uh, I had all the stitches and stuff in my face, uh, the majority of that stuff in my face, that might have been difficult for them. But um, I think because most of it was, was on the side and the back and... And when they walked in, I just got this giant smile on my face. I think that helped them. And uh, I just remember, uh, just remember the three of them coming over and giving me a big hug. Oh, it was just the best. So I got to spend, uh, I got to spend some time with them and, and the rest of my family. And, um, after a while they were like, look, you know, there's a lot of you guys here. He's got to rest. So, um, you know, they said my wife, you know, Andrew, you could stay, but everyone else really needs to go. So, uh, you know, I think they were fair and I think that was fair. Um, so they went, uh, everyone went back to their houses, I guess. And, um, my, uh, Joey and Dominic, they went back to my mom's. So it was Andrew and I, and, uh, they put us into a room and, uh, you know, watching TV and uh, flipping through the channels. And then you get to the tees, the news tees coming up at five. And uh, it was coming up at five. Uh, spree killer Maxim Gelman is apprehended. Hear all about it from the mayor and the police commissioner. All right. So. Of course, you know, I didn't find out about this guy till I got to the hospital. I'm trying to piece together things while I'm there. Well, now I'm going to hear from the mayor and the police commissioner. So, uh, all right. So you got me. I'm the, I'm in. I'm all in. We're all in. So um, I'm lying there, Andrew, sitting there. The news starts, and they go, uh, breaking news a couple hours ago, uh, wanted spree killer Maxim Gelman was apprehended on an uptown number three subway train. Thanks to this, uh, well, then they go, uh, oh, press conference was uh, held however long ago, whatever. And standing at the uh, 
standing at the podium, the mayor, uh, Michael Bloomberg, Commissioner Ray Kelly, a bunch of other jackasses. And um, the mayor says, thanks to the swift action of police officers Terrence Howell and Tamara Taylor and off-duty officer Marcelo Razzo, Maxim Gelman was apprehended on an Uptown One train earlier this morning. And, oh, okay. And my wife goes red. And I look at her, and I still got a good amount of morphine in me. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I'm like, you know, just wait. Let's see. And um, the only thing they mentioned about me was that uh, I was the latest victim, the last victim. And I hate that word. I do. I hate that word. I don't call myself a victim. I never, I have, I know in the past, I haven't in a while. I never will ever again because I don't think I'm a victim. So, um, now I'm still kind of loopy because of the morphine, but she's pissed and I'm starting to get pissed too. And again, I don't want credit. I want the truth. That's <laughs> It's all I ever wanted for 11 years. It's all I wanted was the truth. But the spin happened right away with that press conference. The spin happened right away with a tweet from uh, at NYPD News. The spin was on. I, um, I I just felt it was important to go over those details because... You can read what you want to read. You can read newspaper articles. You can listen to shows. You can watch documentaries. But what I'm able to give you is a first-person account of what happened from the time Maxim Gelman stepped on the Uptown Number 3 train until he was taken off and until I got to the hospital. So there's no account more reliable than mine out there on the internet, on a podcast, on a show, anywhere. There's no other account as reliable as mine. I was there. I remember everything. So I wanted to set the record straight with that. Now, really it's, it's a tale of two, two things because, um, you know, I, I won't go too much more, and I will say if you're interested in the whole story, please uh, um, go back. Um, I did a two-part episode last year on the anniversary called The Day I Died. Um, that'll have the details, like I said today, and also the de- the subsequent details about court. Um, basically, what happened was um, I testified before a grand jury. And it was uh, pretty intimidating because I'd never done that before. I don't think most people do. And uh, not intimidating because of of what I had to say. It was pretty intimidating because you're in a room, you're in a courtroom, and I don't know how many people were there. It was a lot of people. And, uh, you know, as you can tell from this, I'm not exactly – a professional when it comes to maintaining my composure when I tell this story, but um, I did my best that day, and the uh, ADA showed the jury pictures of my head before I was stitched. Uh, They were uh, horrified, absolutely horrified. Um, 
I watched people as they were given the picture. Some of them, I mean, actually a good portion of them wouldn't even look at them. They just handed them off to the next person. And um, I testified that day when I was done. I uh, went into the waiting room waiting for uh, my wife and my sister. Uh, my sister had to go do something police-related that day, so she was taking care of that while I was testifying. And lo and behold, who do I sit next to? <clears throat> who do I sit next to but uh, Tamara Taylor? And uh, I think she was testifying that day. I don't know. But while I was sitting next to her, that's when Terrence Howell was testifying. And I sat next to Tamara Taylor, and she looked all uneasy. And, oh, how are you doing, whatever, and make small talk, whatever. And I was, you know, just saying, and I'm like, yeah, I said, uh, never forget when you called me likely. And she just looked at me, and she looked at me and goes, you remember that? And I'm like, yeah. I said, uh, I lost consciousness, but I remember everything. And she just got this look on her face, like this real uneasy look. And uh, with that, I think I got a text. Hey, we're here, whatever. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go wait outside. And um, I leave. Now, I'm out of work uh, a couple of weeks. I go back to work. And um, it's, <laughs> I swear to God, it's the first day I'm back at work. I uh, leave work. And... Um, if you're familiar with Lincoln Center, you know there's a big fountain right in the middle. I have some time uh, between the time I clocked out and um, had to make my train. So I'm just on the phone talking. You know, my phone was crazy that those few weeks because people are hearing about it on the news and everything. And um, so I'm talking to one of my friends, and I notice there's someone following me. And I, I said, you're not going to believe this. What? Someone's following me. And they're like, get the fuck out of here. And I'm like, I'm telling you, someone is following me. All right. I go, let me call you back. I hang up the phone. I slow down my pace. This guy doesn't slow down his pace. And I turn around and I'm like, can I help you? And he's kind of startled. And he goes, oh, you know, hey, I'm not looking for trouble. I really need to talk to you. You're Joe, right? The guy from the subway, which I think in essence was sort of rhetorical because I basically looked like Frankenstein at that time. And uh, it was obvious I was, but, uh, you know, you got to ask, right? So uh, I said, yeah. He goes, hey, uh, do you have a few minutes to talk? I said, yeah, absolutely. So uh, he goes, I just want you to know um, I was on the grand jury that you testified in front of. And I said, well, I don't know. How do I know that? That was on the news and everything. You know, can is there a way you could prove it to me? He goes, uh, well, I remember the pictures that they showed, and I remember that people did not want to look at them. He goes, I looked at them, but the people on either side of me did not, and most people did not. And I said, okay, because that was never made public, so I know you were there. What's up? He said, you know, I went home that day. He goes, what you should know is your testimony was very powerful. Uh, we were going to indict this guy no matter what, no matter what any of the cops said or anything. He was indicted after your testimony he goes but what you should know is after you testified terrence howell testified and in his testimony he said that uh while 
you guys were uh, struggling or right before, I guess when he reached into his jacket, he said, he testified and it's on the record that um, Terrence Howell was going to come out. He started to open the door to come out, but he thought that Maxim Gelman had a gun. So he closed the door and stayed inside. Now I'm going to pause here for effect because what a what a uniform what an armed uniform police officer just admitted to was the person he was on the train the specific person that he was on the train to arrest that day he was about first of all he allowed this guy to injure another person potentially kill them and in the scuffle while he was about to come out to to get this guy off me, I guess, and make the arrest. He had second thoughts because he thought this gentleman had a gun. So he left this guy on the subway in a subway car full of people to potentially hurt or kill other people while Terrence Howell and his partner were safe behind a locked steel door. So I'm going to pause right now to let that sink in. So proceed with the sinking in. Sunk in yet? So he tells me this, and I'm floored. I'm like, like speechless. Like even 11 years later, I don't know what to say. I'm like, are you serious? He goes, yes. He goes, and when I went home and I was watching your interviews on TV, he goes, you're giving the police way too much credit. And I said, listen, I my, my sister's a cop. I have friends who are cops. It's a job I respect. I know they have a tough job. Um, and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, you're giving these cops too much credit. He goes, forget about how you feel about the job in general. He goes, you're giving these cops too much credit. They hung you out to dry. And he said, um, when he was done testifying, while he was testifying, he goes, we were all looking at each other like, did he just say that? And when he was done and he left the room, he goes, we basically surrounded the ADA and asked him if we could bring this guy up on charges because he obviously didn't do his job. Basically, you have a room full of taxpaying New York City residents, and this guy's admitting to not doing his job. He goes, we were furious. And the ADA said, no, 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 that's not what we're here for. We're here to indict Gelman. And... um he basically said that he wanted to make sure that I was aware of that. And uh, I don't remember his name. If I did remember his name, I wouldn't say it. But I don't remember his name, and I'm glad I don't. But I am forever grateful. And, and if, if uh, that man is someone who has followed what I've done, whether it's writing the book or the documentaries or the show or other shows I've been on, and it's, it's a key part to the story, uh, I am forever in your debt for telling me that little nugget of news because I never would have known otherwise, and I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, now, of course, I felt like I was attacked all over again, and now I had to wait two and a half hours because I was living in Philadelphia again at the time. Now I have to take the train home to Philadelphia. Now I go home. I tell my wife. Now, of course, we want to pursue legal action. And and I'll I'll go through this pretty quickly, um, because I really just, you know, that's that's out there. Um, we uh, we contact a lawyer who I really like and um, tell him what's going on. He'd heard of the case. 
and uh, he basically he was very cool right from the right from the out, outset. He goes, look, he goes, come in, talk to me, and we'll discuss it. And um, I did that uh, later that week. I was off from work. I drove up to Long Island, and uh, I sat and I talked to him. And he goes, you know, since we got off the phone, I did a little research on it. He goes, I'm going to take your case, but I just want you to know what's going to happen. I said, okay. He goes, first, we're going to file the claim. He goes, uh, then we're going to go through discovery. And he goes, once we're done with discovery, they're going to move to dismiss the case. And I start laughing. I'm like, dismiss the case? I'm like, how could they dismiss this case? There's no way. So he calls me over to his computer screen. He starts having me read a couple of these cases. And he goes, what they're going to say is that the police officers did not owe you a duty to protect because you didn't have a special relationship. So I'm here going, I don't even know what you just said, but it sounds like a bunch of bullshit. Like in my head, I'm saying that because in my head, I'm like, there's no way they're getting out of this. But he goes, read these. And he had me read a couple of cases. So I'm like, but he goes, listen, I'm going to take the case. He goes, I'm going to work my tail off for you. He goes, I'm just telling you how it's going to be. And I go, what does that mean, special relationship? And basically, the way it was explained to me was, um, if I had known who Maxim Gelman was, and I knew there was this police manhunt for him, and I knew, and I saw Maxim Gelman, and I saw the cops, and I had said, hey, the guy you're looking for, Maxim Gelman, he's right here, and they acknowledged me, and we had a conversation about it. Well, now we have a special relationship. Exactly. It makes no sense. But it's again, it's full, you know, the the justice system, the legal system, it's all full of loopholes. And that's a loophole. I did not have a special uh, relationship. So they did not owe me a duty to protect. But again, in my head, I'm like, uh, I'm like, there's no way. There's no way. And um, so we filed the case. Um, he goes to court, I think, once or twice. Then my wife and I have to go get interviewed by the city's insurance adjuster. Well, good news and bad news there. Uh, he was very impressed. Uh, we do the interview. My wife was only interviewed for a couple of minutes. I was interviewed for a little longer than that. Uh, as we're getting up to leave, he goes, uh, Ed, can I talk to you for a minute? Yeah, you know, no problem. So Andrew and I go wait outside. Ed comes outside with the big smile on his face. And I'm like, what's up? And he goes, man, he goes, he just called you the city's worst nightmare. And I start laughing. I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, well, he goes, first, you remember everything. He goes, you can recall everything without getting excited, without losing your temper. Uh, he goes, you speak very clearly and you sound like you know what you're talking about and you sound very confident. He goes, um, he interviews a lot of people and uh, they, they react differently. Everyone reacts differently. He goes, but you're calm and you're cool. And you are basically reciting everything the way it happened. He goes, you're the city's worst nightmare. So in a way I thought that was a good thing. Well, I guess that kind of backfired on me because like Ed had said, they moved to dismiss the case. Now, Unlike what Ed said, Ed said that they would probably make the motion to dismiss after discovery. 
I don't know if this interview kind of shook them up a little bit, but they said, look, we didn't even get to the discovery phase. They made the motion to dismiss. Okay. So um, we have a court date. Ed goes to court. He gets an extension. Um, before the next court date, Ed calls me, and he says, listen, he goes, I got bad news for you. He said, um, I have racked my brains. I've I've met with other attorneys uh, trying to get around this no special duty thing. He goes, they have a lot of precedent in their corner. I really don't see a way where I can fight this. So I said, okay, uh, what are my options? So he goes, well, he goes, we could just, this, we could just tell him that we're withdrawing it and that's it. And life goes on for you. Um, he goes, you can try to find another lawyer. Uh, he says, but understand that finding another lawyer means that, uh, first of all, they probably were not going to take the case on contingency. And then not only that, they had to find something that Ed and his colleagues couldn't find to fight this motion to dismiss. So he goes, you can try to do that. He goes, I can even give you some names of people, but that might be uh, a tough sell. He goes, you never know. He goes, or, and so I go, wait, Ed, I said, hold on. I said, I know this is probably crazy. I said, but what about, can I, I said, look, I can't afford another lawyer. Um, especially if they're not going to take the case on contingency. Um, can I represent myself? And he goes, you know what? I normally wouldn't recommend it. He goes, but in your case, he goes, uh, you have nothing to lose. And he said, you would actually, I think, be very sympathetic to a judge. So he goes, I would say if you, if you don't have any other options, absolutely have a go. And, and um, so that's called pro se. It's another term I learned. Um, so he said, okay, he goes, you know, come to my office. I'll give you the files and um, you know, I'll help you in any way I can. He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send a letter to the court, letting them know I'm recusing myself from the case, letting them know that you're going to proceed as your own attorney pro se. And, um, that's it. So the next court date is whatever date it was. He goes, I would recommend that, uh, you give yourself more time to prepare. So I would recommend you go there and ask for an extension. So that's what I did. I went there, I prepared, uh, a request for an extension. There were two clerks there, uh, did not see the judge. Uh, one clerk could not have been cooler and one clerk could not have been a bigger asshole. And of course I had to deal with the clerk that was an asshole. So, uh, I, I had uh, asked for an extension and he's like, you know, your lawyer has asked for extensions already. He goes, we can't keep postponing this. And I said, uh, look, I said, I understand that. I said, but I'm representing myself now. I just, you know, I'm asking for a little bit of time to prepare my case pro se. And it was like, I was asking him to, you know, whatever, think of something very difficult. And that's how he reacted. But reluctantly, he gave me some more time. So while I was going up against the city who has any number of attorneys working for them, any number of resources working in their favor or uh, available to them, I was basically preparing my case before work, after work, and on my days off. And um, when I was done, I sent my uh, paperwork to Ed. He looked it over. 
he, you know, nice compliment he paid me. He goes, you know, for Lehman, this is actually pretty good. Uh, he told me some stuff. He goes, you know, this is kind of repetitive. Maybe get rid of that. Um, uh, but he said, overall, he goes, I really, he goes, it's actually pretty good. And I, Hey, you know what? I love to write. And, uh, so I took that as a compliment, um, you know, doing my research on the, on the cases that they used, none of which, none of which had anything to do with my case. They're throwing out cases to support their case, um, about fences surrounding schools, uh, and lack of locks, um, furniture, office furniture, uh, was one of the cases, um, exotic cars was one of the cases. So they were just throwing everything against the wall. And, and I think it was quantity over quality. And they just, this insane number of cases they cited, none of which had anything to do with me and going into it. My goal was to just put some doubt in the mind of the judge, because I figured if I can put a little bit of doubt in the mind of the judge, then, then she won't dismiss it because you know, what, what else can I do? I just have to put some doubt in her mind. And, um, I learned a hard lesson because, um, uh, you know, I did just that, uh, in her papers, in her, in her dismissal papers, the judge all but agrees with everything I said, calls my recollection of events highly credible and passionate, whatever, whatever it was that she said. And I didn't know, I, you know, I, to this day, I don't know if she's trying to just be complimentary to try to soften the blow. Um, but I did not, I guess, put enough doubt in her mind. Although I think I did. I, I think I did. I just think, uh, you know, there are certain forces that work together. Uh, maybe one hand washes the other. I'm not afraid to say that. Uh, one one person scratches one back. The other person scratches. I mean, there's any number of things that work here. And um, unfortunately, uh, my case was dismissed. And um, I called Ed and I said, well, what are my options now? And he said, well, he goes, you can definitely appeal it. He goes, you will most likely not find any lawyer to take the appeal on contingency. And similar to when I told you that you'd have to, you could find another lawyer to take over for me. He goes, now this lawyer has even more appeal climb because he has to find a, a way to say that not only was their motion to dismiss incorrect, but their, the judge's decision to dismiss the case was incorrect. So he said, that's a pretty much an uphill climb. And, um, you know, I don't think you're going to find a lawyer to take it on contingency. And of course he was right. I didn't. And, um, it died on the vine right there. So, um, what have I done since then? Well, I wrote a book and a self-published book. And unfortunately, uh, all the money that I raised to write the book, I neglected to put any money aside for marketing. Uh, I basically did my research, how much it would cost to publish this book. That's the number that I, that was my goal. And when I hit that goal, I said, perfect. And, uh, forgot about marketing. So in terms of sales, I uh, you know, 
let's call them modest, and that may be stretching things a little bit. But um, the people who've read the book, uh, I've everybody has really good feedback. I mean, there's a couple of people on Amazon that didn't really care for it or me, and that's okay. Um, but the people who've read it really, um, you know, they told me that, uh, you know, they can they can tell my passion and, um, you know, all sorts of good things. So I guess um, I would like to say, hey, I wrote this best-selling book. And, um, you know, uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, I hope to do with the book was to get the story out there. Um, based on sales, I didn't get it out to enough people, but um, I got it out to a good amount of people and people read the story and they know the, the ins and outs of the story. And um, I'm not, not at all telling you to go on Amazon right now and buy the book. Uh, that's not what I'm doing here. I'm just telling you um, as far as my recovery, my uh, peace of mind writing that book was uh, all the therapy I needed every chapter when I was done with a chapter, it was like another load of bricks were off my back. And um, I basically wrote the book uh, in over nine months of a year. I remember I had written, I think, for uh, about six months. And then I think I got burned out. And I took about three months off. And then I, I finished it uh, after that. And I'm glad I did. And um, uh but don't look for it in bookstores. It's not It's not good enough to be in bookstores. I mean, Kardashians have books in the bookstores. Uh, but my book's not good enough. But uh, but no, I mean, I, I wrote the book. It was very therapeutic for me. Uh, I've appeared on uh, multiple podcasts talking about it. And, um, you know, I've discussed it on my own show here. Um <sighs> My uh, my only recourse right now is to get this story out to as many people as possible. And um, that's what I hope to do. Um, as some of you know, I have been furloughed from Lincoln Center due to COVID. Now I'm currently furloughed from Lincoln Center due to renovations. And I, uh, I'm very fortunate that um, I still know a few people at Madison Square Garden. And uh, I reached out to them months ago and i said hey listen i'm going to be furloughed for a while uh if you're looking for people keep me in mind and they were and i've been there since october i believe late september or october um i'm very very fortunate that they took me back so there's probably five or six people that still work there from the time that uh, i did and uh i've made a lot of new friends there really really good people that work there um, I mean, as far as ticket selling goes, I, I told the boss there, I said, you got a lot of young talent here. Um, really, really good kids. And, um, uh, woman I work with Carolyn, um, really, really is, uh, taking a big interest in this story. And, um, she really has uh, lit a fire under me about, um, trying to get this made into a movie. Now she knows some people in the business, and, um, you know, so far things are going slowly on that Avenue, but, um, this week I will be sending out letters and copies of the book to, uh, I have a list of people and, um, who knows what happens, you know, uh, 
in an earlier episode, I said I want to, you know, after a shitty 2020 and a really shitty 2021, I really wanted to make uh, 2022, I wanted to make that a really good year. And, um, you know, back to work, that was a start. Um, we were renting a new place now that we love. Uh, that's a new start. We got a puppy a couple of weeks ago. That's a new start. Uh, just trying to load up this year with positivity. And um, ultimately, if uh, if I can, you know, all it takes is one person to kind of look at the book maybe and uh, read my letter or whatever it is. And again, just let me look into this. Let me see what's going on here. So all it takes is one. I know that, you know, fuck these people in the Hollywood. They get um, shit thrown their way every day. But uh, what I've always said is, especially when it came to me defending myself in this case, is I can only do what I can do. And I did everything I could do. I gave every ounce of energy that I had into um, writing my uh, response to their motion to dismiss. After that, it's out of my hands. And this whole thing now where uh, Carolyn's really, really like into this, we got to get this done. And I'm like, okay, well you talk to the people that you know, and, and um, I'm going to just send some stuff out to other people. And, and if it lands, it lands. So um, as I speak to you now, um, who knows? I mean, maybe somewhere down the road, you never know. So I would say if anyone listening to this has any connections with anyone in television or Netflix or Hollywood, whatever, and they're looking for uh, something different, let them know. Just let them know, and uh, and we'll see what happens. So right now we're at about 2.15. I had no intention of going this long, uh, and I really edited a lot of this out, not not after recording it, like in my head, like I really didn't go through, uh, Gelman's timeline before him and I met really didn't go into too much detail about, um, the court stuff. I kind of gave you the, the, the important parts. Uh, I didn't talk about all the nice things that a lot of people did for me. And, and I generally like to talk about that too. Um, but for this, it's, it, for this, it's really just, um, clear. <sighs> I don't even want to say clear in the air because it really, while I think most people are familiar with my role in this, um, when I hear podcasts like the one that I listen to, uh, it's obvious I'm not reaching everybody and I really want to do that. But uh, also every year on the anniversary, I kind of rehash this and uh, maybe next year I'll, I'll do it again from start to finish. But um, that is uh, basically my role in this. Um, like I, uh, I said before, please, I, uh, I retweet every day, three things on Twitter. One is, um, a short, short documentary done by, um, Luke from we are change, um, about what the duty is of police, especially in New York city. And, uh, that was really the first big thing that happened to me on, uh, YouTube. I retweet that every day. I also retweet the documentary that I was discussing, uh, Killing Spree. And again, I urge you to to go and watch that, especially if you watch um, The Killer Speaks, because uh, you'll see the differences yourself. 
And uh, I also tweet out every day something done by Cracked Magazine. If you're uh, of a certain age, you remember Cracked Magazine. They were uh, Mad Magazine's biggest competitor. Now they do everything um, online, no more paper magazines, and they do these uh, animations. And um, <laughs> so I, I'm blown away to say that their animation about what happened to me has almost 9 million views. It blows my mind. But if you have time, please go to my Twitter feed at Joe underscore Lozito. Uh, every morning I retweet those three things. If you have time and you really want to learn more, uh, those are three really good places to start. Um, also, if you have any questions, I'm always happy to answer them. You can uh, text me if you have my number. You can DM me on social media. I always get back to everybody. I'm more than happy to talk about it. I'm more than happy to spread the word. Um, and I just ask you people, if you don't mind, uh, you know, the stuff I, I tweet or post on Facebook or whatever about this, uh, please share it. Because, you know, most of the time when you tune into this show, it's it's fun conversation with uh, some really tough dudes. And I appreciate when everyone shares it. Uh, sometimes when you tune in, it's just me rambling on about nothing uh, consequential. You know, but on a day like today, this is something that's pretty important to me. And um, maybe if you could share it on all your uh, all your accounts, you know, share the link to this episode. Uh, the more people that know, the better. Um, it's 11 years later. I still feel like I haven't received any justice. And I still, I still have a lot of fight left in me. So uh, I can use all the help I can get. So if you don't mind sharing this episode... I would really appreciate that. I'd be very grateful. So um, it's really um, a good chunk of the story there. My my participation in the apprehension of this piece of shit who's currently serving 225 years. I hope that he's getting fucking violated daily uh, by uh, by extremely endowed men with no tenderness in their love. Hopefully that happens, and um, hopefully one day I get the notification that he killed himself. And I know that might be tough for some of you to hear, but I uh, gotta tell you, that's what I'm hoping for. I am. I'd love to piss on his grave, and uh, I sh- I know I'm not alone. So with that, if you liked what you heard today, uh, please consider subscribing to the show. Um, and if you have a moment, please like, rate, and review the show. It gives the show greater visibility. Um, obviously all the episodes are not like this. Uh, next week I will, it will return to being a hockey enforcer show. I promise you. Um, like I said, all the episodes are not like this at all. This is sort of a, uh, special circumstance. Uh, but I just want to thank everyone that, uh, reached out to me over the last few days. Um, you know, it's always nice. The anniversary, you know what? Like I always say, like anniversaries, they're they're just another day. What really separates uh, February 12th from February 11th or February 13th? I mean, it, you're talking hours difference. But I understand. I understand what anniversaries are. But, uh, you know, to everyone who's concerned about me, I really appreciate that. But I really want everyone to know that um, I got a pretty strong uh, support system here. You know, my family's very close. And, um, I'm doing okay. You know, I am there. And listen, some days are tougher than others. And, um, 
like I said, I'm still pissed because I still feel like I got to get justice for this somehow. Um, but in terms of day to day, you know, uh, like I said, in this house, I got my wife, I got my boys. Now I got the puppy and, uh, you know, I got, uh, my mom and dad and, uh, my stepmom, my sister, uh, my niece, you know, my nephew, my in-laws, uh, I got a lot of people looking out for me. So, uh, I'm very fortunate, very fortunate in that respect. So, uh, for those of you that worry about me, I'm, I'm doing okay. I am, uh, I'm doing okay. Thank you for your concern. So, um, I guess that's about it for now. So, uh, as I always say until next week, you people out there, please stay safe.